Welcome to the arena, where sometimes the hardest part is showing up. My name is Linda McLaughlin. Thank you for being here. I have known Miranda Kamal for over 10 years. When we first met, she helped me reach my fitness goals through a boxing training program she was running. She was also starting a non-contact boxing program working with young people in schools in Toronto. Why boxing? It helps train the mind and body. It teaches discipline, and it's really hard work. I've split this conversation into two parts in order to share more of Miranda's story, her philosophy about being in the arena as an athlete, and an inspiring woman. Thank you for listening. This is episode 20. You guys have been amazing in terms of keeping up your Zoom workouts. It's still going well, but I'm used to 90 minutes of more like an elite style workout. And now we're doing 30 minutes and like mentally in 30 minutes, I'm tapped out. And the audience is tapped out as well. So it's like trying to reframe that to say 30 minutes is better than no minutes. Overall, I feel sluggish too, right? At this point, if you weren't feeling sluggish, I would be more worried. It would be weird. Like it's almost a year. If you were feeling like, yeah, I feel great. This is amazing. I would be like, we have drugs. <laughs> <laughs> you would have to have drugs. That's just not humanly possible at this point. I have an intro for you. Okay. Miranda Kamal, you're a daughter, sister, and wife. You're an entrepreneur, a former competitive boxer, and an international boxing association, two-star boxing coach. And you're one of a handful of women to hold that distinction. Are there any other women who have that distinction or is like one or two or? <laughs> no. I, I, when I got my certification in 2018, there was 26. Oh, okay. World, two yeah. handfuls. <laughs> two, <laughs> two dozen. <laughs> two dozen women. Maybe three dozen now, two more years. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Maybe three dozen. You're now the head coach and executive director of Mentoring Junior Kids Organization, or MJKO for short, which you founded in 2010 with your now husband, Ibrahim Firearm Kamal. Your work is predominantly with young people in Parkdale, some of whom have been a part of MJKO since its inception. They've grown up in your programs dealing with lots of hardship, from the threat of immigration deportations and food insecurity to drugs, gangs, and homelessness. In some cases, they have become mentors to others in their community. You are a part of the village that has helped and continues to help raise these young people, but it hasn't been easy. Welcome to the arena, Miranda. Thank you. That was such a big introduction. I got a little goosebumps over here. I was like, is that me she's talking about? That's me. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. It's such an incredibly difficult time for everyone in the world, but certainly somebody who's trying to sustain a grassroots not-for-profit, working in an inner-city neighborhood with kids who have all kinds of challenges at the best of times, never mind during COVID times. It's certainly uh, testing my belief in what I'm doing and what my purpose on this earth is. And it's actually, in some senses, too reaffirming the goodness in individual people. It just reminds me if you feel, think of like a field that's totally empty, there'll be like this one like little flower growing. And somehow people are able to grow in the most difficult situations. And I think that for us at MJQ, I'm thankful because there's been a lot of people in Toronto who care enough to reach out and 
want to help grassroots charities. And I think that's reinvigorated me or gave me a little bit of hope in the goodness of giving and the goodness of just trying to do good, not because of accolades or sponsorship or just you want to do good. And, and some people have the power to do good. And I think as much as it's been hard, there's been also that part where just amazing people have been reaching out and they want to help people and organizations like ours. You're amazing people. Oh, I always think it's funny. I, I don't think that we're amazing people per se. I just think that we're lucky, like in general, to have found a community to your point that we can make an impact in. And I'm lucky to be able to turn some difficult times as a young person to use that as a way now to help others and to have found a gift that the actual work and being in the community is not that hard. All the political stuff and the funding, all that is extremely hard, but being rooted in what you love, I think that certainly has helped in this pandemic time more than any other time that I've experienced hardship within the charity. So take me back to your childhood. You grew up on the East Coast and what was dinner conversation like in your household? You know, I, I'm lucky in that my dad has always believed in entrepreneurship. He's the only way to truly be happy is to follow your dreams. So I was lucky in that I did have parents who allowed me to be the oddball. And I remember as a kid, you know, we would go out for family dinners and we would all get dressed and I would have like red shoes on, yellow pants, a purple top. I didn't really ever mind being outside the box. I think because my parents gave me so much independence, it allowed me to understand the value of money. And I understood from a young age, some people had it and some people didn't. But I also understood stigma because even though my dad was university educated, he had a great job. When I was a child, we lived in a trailer park. And I think when you're a kid, you don't actually, like you're a kid, you're running around with your friends. You don't really understand what a stigma is or what that looks like. And my parents originally, their plan was they purchased this mobile home outright as a stepping stone to later buy a house. So I progressed to like high school, junior high school. There was like slang, like trailer park trash. And you'd watch these shows, trailer park boys. And people would always be making comments about like trailer parks and then I started to realize, oh, even though like my dad has this good job and we're well taken care of, I play every sport. My brother had braces. We traveled. Like there was a stigma living in a trailer park. And then as I got transitioned to high school, I think that's where I really struggled because I was around a lot of kids that were really smart. And a lot of them came from very affluent homes. And that's when I started to get really embarrassed about where I lived. And I think at that point, looking back, it's also when I started to maybe make some bad decisions. I started to hang out with some people that maybe I shouldn't have. And then that, that led me down a different path. But I guess amongst all those things, one of the amazing parts about my childhood was sports. I've been involved in competitive sports my entire life. And I think that rooted me to a different community outside of my family, outside of my living conditions, outside of my school. It kind of helped me transition, not just as a young person, but like from Halifax to Toronto. And then as an adult, it really gave me a framework that without sports, I don't know if I would have been able to handle all of the negativity that came with living in a place like a trailer park. And I also think that's why I can relate to kids that live in Parkdale and stigma around what people consider low income areas and why people choose to live in them. So I somewhat believe everybody has a story and your journey and what you bring to the table 
is as important maybe as your education or your title. And I think for me, volunteering, I learned that from my mom. My mom was like the school librarian. She like went to every field trip. She would pick up all the kids hitchhiking because there was no transit system. I went to school at a very diverse school. I had a Jamaican teacher, uh, two teachers from India, a teacher from China. It was predominantly black kids and white kids. And I, I was exposed to diversity very young. But I think that's why I can relate to some of the kids too, because there comes a point when you go from like thinking your world is amazing to realizing there's like an adult world and stigma and you have to fit into a box. And I think that part of growth can be really hard. And that's some of the work that we do in South Parkdale is trying to use sport as a way to create social change and to give kids a belief that you're enough no matter what the outside world is telling you or where you live or what shoes you're wearing, like you personally are enough. And I think for my journey, boxing taught me that. And without it, I wouldn't have found my way to that. What event in your life has had the most profound impact on you? I would say for sure, as a young person, I was sexually assaulted. And I don't want to be emotional, but that changed my life forever. And as an adult, like, I'm okay, even though like I cry when I talk about it. I'm totally okay. And so much good has come come about because of that. But that changed my belief in myself. It changed how I viewed the world. And I think that, like not to take away, but it's like that moment when you realize Santa Claus doesn't exist. So up until that point, I had never truly faced something that I felt like I couldn't handle, maybe on my own or not. But that just shattered my world. And too, because I was young, it happened right before I turned 16. I think that my brain wasn't still being developed. I didn't have the coping mechanisms in place to really work that all through. So I didn't tell anybody what happened to me until I was an adult woman. I took up the sport of boxing and I was finally at a position where I feel like I got myself back. And I think like now we're at a stage with Me Too and more conversations and more women sharing that I think is amazing. So more people feel like they can share their story and kind of have more family and more support. But when I was going through that, I felt like, alone and I didn't want to disappoint my family and it's like too like my family said oh if you continue to hang out with these people something bad is going to happen and then something bad did happen so all of those things it just like literally stopped me in my tracks and I also I was an outgoing athlete I'd already competed in one Canada Games I was going to another Canada Games and I felt like I was indispensable and then all of a sudden it was like my world was shattered and I wanted to be invisible. So it changed how I dressed. It changed how I interacted. It changed how I went to school. Like it changed everything about me. But at the same time, now I realize like maybe I wouldn't have the grit or the ability to overcome all of these things without having to go through that really terrible experience. What does living courageously mean to you? I think it's just understanding that Even people that have it on the surface put together and have the best schools or the best 
cars or money in the bank that the only way to I feel like live courageously is to truly be yourself. And I think you and I were chatting about bravery and people who run into burning buildings and people who kind of are running in when everybody else is running out. And I think I'm not taking away from their accomplishments, but I think they're just like us. And maybe they're running from something or they're running to something, but just because they're running into the building doesn't mean they feel complete and they have it all together. And that's why we have so many police officers committing suicide and struggling because they feel like they have that weight of I'm a hero. But the truth of the matter is living courageously is just being yourself and getting up every single day, I think, and trying to be the best version of you. So it has nothing to do with other people, other people's expectations. It's just like, how can you be better every single day? And better doesn't mean more money or a better job or more wealth. Better means feeling like you're contributing to a world to make it a better place, like feeling you're okay to be alone with yourself and feeling everybody's going to have goals and you're going to stretch for those goals, but being content to say, you know what, based on my current situation, I did the best I could do and I'm going to keep striving for those goals. But I think courageousness is just finding the ability to be okay with yourself with less judgment. I think that in life, our journeys just make us who we are. And it takes such a long time to get to a point where you can appreciate your journey and then also appreciate that it's never ending. So even though right now, like you could have times in your life when you feel courageous or maybe times when you feel down, but it's not going to be like, oh, you're courageous. And then you have that for life. It's a continual process where you're always learning and you're always trying to do better. But for me personally, I think courageousness, happiness, they're all tied to finding things that you're passionate about and and being happy. Without happiness, I, I think it's hard to do anything, in all honesty. I think it's so strange because I always think most of us as little kids have a vision. Like, oh, when I grow up, I want to be whatever. But somehow the world comes into effect and you either stop believing you can do it. You feel like it's impossible. Someone told you couldn't do it. But that inner little person in you, it's like, if you can listen to that inner voice, that's what courageousness is. To be able to follow that voice and say, you know what? It may or may not work, but my little voice is telling me like, that's what you want to try. That's the courageous moment. It's not necessarily the result or it's just the action of trying. I think realizing if you're stuck in trying something new, maybe you'll get stuck again, but that's okay. What has stood in your way of pursuing your goals? I think in all honesty, the most challenging part about, I think someone that has my personality type is that most of the things that prevent me from achieving my goals are out of my control. So the things that are within my control, I feel like I do those to the max. One goal I have for myself is I want to go to the Olympics as an Olympic boxing coach. So when I think about like my journey, so I have all the education, I've checked all the boxes. I'm by no means an expert in boxing tactics. I do need to still learn in that area. And I've always been open to having a mentor and so forth. But the truth of the matter is that opportunity has never been open to me. So whether it's because I'm a female or it's because I'm not a past champion, that's become like a big roadblock. So no matter what, opportunities I've pursued professionally, there's always been like a no to the point where my 
application has been thrown in the garbage multiple times. For what reason, I don't know. So there came a point when I continued to fight that system. So I would get upset. I would get emotional. I would tell myself, you have to do better. You have to be better. Something is wrong with you. And then to be honest, when I was at the breaking point, I was just like, you have to submit. So I submitted to the fact that I still have that goal, but whether or not I'm going to achieve that goal right now is not in my control. And sometimes for your own mental sanity, you have to let it go. So for me, I let that go. And I started to pursue more charitable work, doing some work with Boxing Jamaica, helping this initiative called Gloves Over Guns. And I built some contacts there. And I still have a dream of going to the Olympics. But I think even for people that are organized, we still have days where you don't want to do things and you want to give up. And sometimes I've learned now as like now I'm 43, sometimes giving up is the best thing you can do to achieve your goal. It just feels like that goes against every principle you've been taught. But now I'm at a point where I have a little bit more, I don't want to say like belief in the universe, but I feel like sometimes it's not your time or maybe it's not your path. But for me, I go back to what I'm fundamentally rooted in, which is I love the sport of boxing. I love everything it taught me and I want to share that gift. So whether I make it to the Olympics or I help thousands of kids feel better about this themselves, it's as good as going to the Olympics because I, I know many people that have an Olympic medal and you know, that was their whole focus. That was their whole identity. And they're unhappy now. And they've already achieved that goal. Some goals that maybe I thought I wanted, they were not really goals for me. So I'd also think of sometimes the goals that we're not reaching are maybe not the right goals. Like maybe we're picking a goal that we're actually not passionate about. And once you get on that track of passion and what you love, I think the goal setting and the drive it comes a little bit more naturally. And if you're feeling like you have to force it, oh, this is so hard. Maybe that's not the right path for you. So I think the whole goal setting process, it's also moving, like it's not stagnant. And sometimes you have to just reevaluate. That's a tricky one. I think sometimes people see pursuing a goal and being courageous is I cannot give up on this goal. And that's not what it's about either. I had a disc blow up in my back because I was afraid to stop. But that's our society telling us that. It's like, you cannot go up. Oh, that shows weakness. Oh, I think the goal is being able to listen to yourself. And I recently listened to this coach Bennett. He's a Nike running coach and he's, you're your best coach. And that really resonated with me because in life, it's like, who are you trying to prove? Okay, wow, you did a tough mutter. Like, what the heck? Big deal. So I understand the process to what you're saying. Like you set a goal and you're like, no, I'm going to kill myself. We're so worried about a $20 trophy. And really goals are about the journey and how you evolve as a human. Like, why are you trying to achieve that goal? I think we all have a little bit of that. Oh, I don't want to be seen as a failure. Not completing is failure. For me, it's the Terry Fox motto of try. Do your best, try. And if it's not for you, move on. But I also yeah. think there's a place for enjoyment. So after yeah. having spine surgery and coming back from spine surgery, I really struggled because I wanted to run my best. So mentally, my best was fast and hard. But physically, I had a spine injury. 
I couldn't do that. So I was at war with my injury for a long time because I was like that too. I want to do my best. But now I'll be honest, I run slow and it's the most enjoyable experience more so in anything I've ever done. I run for the fun of it. And even when my body wants to run faster, I'm like, you know what? You're not running to do your best. Your best is enjoying the fresh air on your face, the sun shining down on you and the pure gift of mobility. Like you're not running to be faster. And I think that process for me is a daily process because I've been trained my whole life as an athlete to do my best. And now I feel like my best is to slow down and smell the roses in the last two years, maybe even more so since the pandemic, I appreciate mobility now more than anything. And I would never want to do my best to a point that mobility was taken away again. Because being injured, spending a year on painkillers, not being able to use sport and, and fitness as a way to cope. You were overtraining and basically got yourself to the point where your disc had blown up. up. And I lost all function of my right leg. Basically, it's a medical emergency. So I didn't know when I had to use the, the washroom anymore. So if I wouldn't have had surgery within 24 hours, I probably would have had a catheter for life. Wow. I was in a very male dominated sport. I had that all around me. Like you never quit. Boxers don't quit. Most of the female athletes, when a coach tells them like, hey, go run 10 miles, they actually run the 10 miles. Whereas the men, they're like, I'm not going to run 10 miles every day and then come train for three hours. Are you crazy? So the coaches, most of them being men, are like, oh, okay, they already assume you're only going to do 70% of what they were giving. So me, I was doing 100% of what they were giving me, and my body couldn't keep up, and the, the disc, it blew up. I, I'll remember when I was running, I first felt the disc go, but I was like, suck it up, buttercup, keep going, and I could feel the pain. But then what happens is the endorphins kick in, and you're like, oh, it's not that bad. And then I got home and I was lying on the floor and I'm like, oh my God, I can't move. And then from that process, one year of not being able to carry my groceries, not being able to walk, not being able to sleep, I still continued to do some level of fitness. And then basically it, it got to the point where it literally blew up. And that process of coming back, having a walker, having a cane, being in my late 20s, and seeing myself frail, it's changed my whole perspective on what mobility is and what it means to live healthy as opposed to being an elite athlete and what are the benefits of living healthy as opposed to getting that first place. And I think that really helped transition my mindset to now. It took me five years, six years just to be pain-free. So wow. like now, I only uh, let's say I've had two or three years pain-free. So that run just in the enjoyment without pain is that's the metal. That's the, I didn't quit. That's the ability to keep going and find that level of happiness again. What's the promise that you made to your surgeon? When they told me like, you're having an operation right now, I'm like, that's impossible. I'm not going to do that. And they're like, you're either going to have the catheter or you're going to do it. So I begged them to see the surgeon. Finally, they brought him to me and I promised him right in that hospital bed that if he fixed me, and I, I could walk again, I would quit my job as a mortgage broker, which I was doing quite, quite well at, and I would devote my whole life to the sport of boxing. And he did fix me and I did keep that promise. And even now looking back, I've stayed in contact with my surgeon and he has come back to me and said, Miranda, you taught me such a great lesson because even though you brought me in and I talked to you right before we had surgery, I still 
didn't understand the value that boxing had for you. I didn't know your story. I didn't know your journey. And I was like, oh, take up swimming. And he's like, I honestly didn't really take the heart. Anything that you said, I was going to do the best surgery I could do for you either way. But he's that taught me to pause and listen to my patients and truly understand that what's important to me might not be what's important to them for him to pause and reflect on that experience and to realize, Hey, you know what? I'm a real human with visions and goals and hurts and loves that has to be included into the thought process when you're going into surgery. That was very powerful for me because I didn't tell him any of that for his own growth. I told him that because I was panicking and I was terrified that I'm like, my God, this guy makes a mistake. I'm going to be paralyzed. And after living in pain for so long, I was like, oh, I'll take the pain. I don't want to not be able to walk. And being so young, obviously, the thought of having a catheter is scary. But without that hardship, would I have left my job in banking? Would I have really had the courage to pursue the not-for-profit? But my spine surgery and my injury led me to that. So that's where I say no matter what people are going through in life, It's hard. It's like beyond hard in the moment. But if you can just have patience, something great is going to come from that terrible situation. And it doesn't mean you're you now get a pass like no more bad things are going to happen. No bad things are going to continue to happen. You're just going to have more tools in your backpack to be able to have the patience to see it through and be like, okay, you know what, that was terrible, but it led me to this. And I feel so lucky. I do what I love every day. I've met so many amazing little humans. I've met so many amazing community members. If I could do that until I'll die at MJKO, and it's not certainly for the money, it's for the experience, it's for the love, it's for using that sport of boxing to really help people heal. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe. And if you feel someone else might benefit from listening to this episode, please share it. Leave a rating or review wherever you listen to your podcasts. I also invite you to follow my blog where I continue to explore how to show up more courageously. Visit my website at www.lindamclaughlin.com. I look forward to sharing more of Miranda's story and through our conversation, some of my own. Until next time, my name is Linda McLaughlin in the arena.